Good evening, church. Nice to be here tonight. My name is Paul, and I'm not over 55. But here's a little secret. That group used to be an over 50s group. And then when I turned 50 about three years ago, I, I changed it to an over 55s. <laughs> and in two years' time, it'll be over 60s. <laughs> I'm going to pray. Uh, Father, thank you for this word that you have got for us tonight. Thank you that you care enough to teach us and to challenge us. Father, we want to be open to your leading, your guiding, your directing tonight. And so we invite you, come, Holy Spirit, come. Amen. Now, I love worship music. I love Christian music. It's always on in my house, in my car, when I go for a run. And I love Christian music because it, it fills your mind with truths about God. And it, it warms your heart with those truths about God. And this week I've been loving a new release by Brooke Lidgetwood, and it's called Eight. And it's a cracker of an album. It's got some great new songs, Fear of God and Authority. But it's got some of those golden oldies, like Lead Me to the Cross. Remember that one, Lead Me to the Cross? And my particular favorite is Desert Song. Because in 2008, Desert Song was a song that got me through 2008. And I thought I'd share it with you tonight. The lyrics are on the screen. This is my prayer in the desert. When all that's within me feels dry, this is my prayer in my hunger and need. My God is the God who provides. This is my prayer in the fire, in weakness or trial or pain. There's a faith proved of more worth than gold. So refine me, Lord, through the flame. And here's the declaration. I will bring praise. I will bring praise. No weapon formed against me shall remain. I will rejoice and I will declare that God is my victory and he is here. And friends, there's truths about God, God's presence, God's protection, God's provision, God's pruning. They are truths that you must declare in every season of your life. In all of my life, in every season, you are still God and I've got a reason to sing. This is true. In every season, God is still God, and God is still able, and God is still good, and God is still with us. There's a quote on the screen from Alexander McLaren. It says this, Peace comes not from the absence of trouble, but from the presence of God. And I love that because, because life is not always easy. Life is not plain sailing. There's often storms in life. Because Jesus never promised you a comfortable life. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're exempt from those moments of despair and desperation and frustration and fear and confusion and crying. As I look out at 7 p.m., there are people here who are facing health battles, anxiety, depression, financial crises. People here who are spiritually dry or battling temptations. There are moments of deep desperation. And in those moments, what do you do? Here's what we often do. We often look at our situation, look at our circumstance, and take our eyes off Jesus. 
We often run away from the only one who can provide, who can protect, who is going to be with us, and we, we run to the things of this world. And we doubt God's provision, we doubt God's protection, and we allow our circumstances to overwhelm us and to shake us. So here's our truth for tonight. There is power in the presence of Jesus. There is power in the presence of Jesus because when you run to Jesus, he does provide, he does protect, and he does bring you peace. And those are some truths that I've had to cling on to this week. I love it when the Lord makes you preach on a passage that you don't want to preach on. And God said to me this week, Paul, you can't preach this sermon unless you believe it and live it. So in Matthew chapter 14, I'm going to look at the two of the most famous episodes in Jesus' life, the feeding the 5,000 and the walking on water. So open your Bibles, Matthew 14, verse 13. When Jesus heard what had happened, so he, he's just heard that his, his cousin John the Baptist has been beheaded. It's horrific. So what does Jesus do, verse 13? He withdrew. He withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. And I love that that Jesus needed times of solitude, that Jesus longed for times of prayer, that Jesus wanted time alone with his heavenly Father. He needed that, as we do we all. I hope you long and crave for that solitude, that unhurried time with God. But, verse 13, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. So the people won't leave Jesus alone. They keep interrupting him when he just wants space to pray. And I was thinking, how would I respond to that? I think I would get frustrated and angry and say, just give me five minutes alone with God. Just leave me alone. But that's not the heart of Jesus. Jesus' heart is one of compassion. See that in verse 14, when Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them. That, that word is a gut-wrenching, intense, emotive longing, a deep care for their needs. And so he healed their sick and he fed the 5,000. And I love the way that Matthew pieces this together because did you spot this crazy contrast? Both Herod and Jesus hold a banquet. One's marked by murder and debauchery and the other by compassion and care. So two points tonight, God's abundant provision. God's abundant provision, that's the feeding of the 5,000. It's one of the most famous miracles. And part, apart from the resurrection, it's the only miracle that's in all four Gospels. You know that? So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John sat down to write their Gospels. They weighed what to put in and what to leave out. And all four of them said, this must go in. And you've got this crowd, a massive crowd in need in a remote place. And there is no food, and the people are hungry, and the need is impossible. We're told in verse 21, the number of those there was 5,000 men, besides women and children. So there's probably around 20,000 mouths to feed. If you've ever been to, to Bradfield Park on New Year's Eve here in Kimberley, that's about 20,000 people, a massive crowd, and they're all hungry. And, and the first people hearing this story would have had these kind of, ah, oh, I've heard this before somewhere. Oh, this reminds me of oh, back in Exodus when God had rescued his people uh, and he brought them to the Red Sea and they were hungry. Remember that story? 
And they cried out to God, and God provided manna from heaven, just enough food for every mouth for every day, because God can do that. Oh, this reminds me of 2 Kings chapter 4, when that man comes to Elisha with his few barley loaves, and Elisha says, feed that large crowd, and the man said, that's impossible. And Elisha says, no, no, nothing's impossible with God. This story is steeped in biblical imagery. So what I want to do tonight is just walk you through this story. I want to try and show you, to model to you, how we should be reading the Gospels. So come on this journey with me. Verse 15, as evening approached, the disciples came to Jesus and said, this is a remote place, it's already getting late. They're saying, Jesus, it's getting dark, and we're in the middle of nowhere. Jesus, we're concerned that these people are hungry. Send them away so they can go to their villages and buy themselves some food. Notice in verse 15, the people did not bring food. These crowds did not have food stashed away somewhere that they whipped out. And Jesus didn't bring food that he stashed in a cave to whip out. This is a miracle. And I love Jesus' response in verse 16. Look at it with me. Jesus turns to the disciples and says, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. That's the emphasis. You feed them. And they're thinking, what are you talking about, Jesus? Jesus, you're joking, right? There's 20,000 people here. What do you mean you give them food? We've got nothing to give them. Now, there are so many problems here. Because these disciples have just seen Jesus do miracles. They've seen him heal the sick and raise the dead. Of course he can feed this crowd. But more than that, these disciples have already been given power to cast out demons and heal the sick. They could have done it. So why are they doubting? They're doubting because like us, they just see the problem through a human lens. Like us, they, they overestimate the problem and they underestimate the power of Jesus. They overestimate, they overestimate the, the situation around them, and they underestimate what Jesus could do. And I think we're like that. We do it all the time. We, we just see the problems around us, and we doubt God's power to provide. So verse 17, the, the disciples say, But Jesus, we only have five loaves of bread and two fish. John's Gospel tells us that one little boy had a packed lunch. It's the most famous packed lunch in history. <laughs> Five loaves and two fish. And when you hear the word loaves, please don't think massive sourdough loaf. It's a little bread roll. And, and the fish is not barramundi, it's two sardines. So five bread rolls and two sardines. Just enough to feed one or two people, not 20,000 people. You've got a tiny meal, a massive crowd, and it seems impossible. Now, if you know me, you know that I'm a bit of a maths nerd. So here's a maths equation for you. It's not a trick question. Five plus two equals. Come on. Seven. <laughs> five plus two does not equal 20,000. Now, I've got a maths PhD. I cannot make five plus two equal 20,000. It's impossible. But that is not the full equation, is it? Here's the real equation. 5 plus 2 plus Jesus. 
And five plus two plus Jesus equals anything's possible. Five plus two plus the power of Jesus and the presence of Jesus and anything is possible. Because when you add Jesus to any equation, you have abundant provision. In our hands, five plus two is not much. But in Jesus' hands, it's a different story because the hands of Jesus raised the dead and healed the sick and gave sight to the blind. And so when you put your loaves and fish into the hands of Jesus, you can just sit back and watch what he can and will do with it. And maybe that's your problem. Maybe your problem is that you leave Jesus out of the picture. You're just looking for human solutions, human provision, and you don't include Jesus in your needs. Anyway, verse 18. Jesus says, bring those loaves and fish to me. He directed the people to sit down on the grass. That, that's a bold move. He raises the stakes because you've got to understand sitting down for a meal means you're expecting a banquet. Uh, you stand for a stack, you sit down for a banquet. And then Jesus takes the five loaves and the two fish. In verse 19, he looks up to heaven, he gave thanks, and he broke the loaves. So he didn't bless the food. He lifts the bread, he gives thanks to God like every Jewish man would do before a meal. And I wonder how the disciples were feeling at that moment. How would you feel? Expectant, excited? Or a bit embarrassed because this nut of a man has promised to feed this crowd. 20,000 people, a tiny meal. You're crazy, right? Well, look at verse 19. Jesus gave the bread to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people, and the people ate and ate and ate and ate and ate, and they were all satisfied. I love that. Great word. They were satisfied. They'd had enough. They were content. They were full. They lacked nothing. Now, this story is a fact, not a fiction. This, this actually happened. And I hope you read your Bible as fact. I love the story of the man who became a Christian by the maps at the back of the Bible. True story. He was in a hotel room one night, and he picked up the Gideon Bible, and flicking through it, thought, I'm not quite, quite bothered to read it, but I'll look at the maps. And he looked at the maps, he saw all these, all these places, and all these names, and he thought, gosh, this is history, and this really happened. And he gave his life to Christ. Because if you'd been part of that crowd that day, you would have seen God's abundant provision. You would have seen a miraculous provision. You would have been fully satisfied, and it would have been all-encompassing because no one was excluded. That is verse 20. The disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces. Why 12? Because of 12 apostles, 12 tribes, because Jesus is more than able to provide for all of God's people. Jesus is more than able to provide for all of God's people. Another song I'm loving right now is called More Than Able. And here's the lyrics. When did I start to forget all the great things that you did? When did I throw away faith for the impossible? How did I start to believe that you were not sufficient for me? Why do I talk myself out of seeing miracles? You are more than able. You are more than able. Why am I, who am I to deny what the Lord can do? 
So three quick reflections on this feeding the 5,000 or feeding 20,000. Right, number one, Jesus can provide for all your needs. Do you believe that? Jesus can provide for all of your needs. Physical, emotional, spiritual. He knows what you're going through. His heart's one of compassion, and he's more than able. The equation five plus two plus Jesus, and anything is possible. Not, not your wants, but he promises to provide for your needs. He can put food on the table, clothes on your back, roof over your head, provide that friendship, provide that finances, more than able. And in his kindness, he often gives us way, way more than we ask or imagine. I think for, for most of my Christian life, I, I live with this, this theology, this understanding, understanding of God, that God was a God of scarcity. God's not a God of scarcity. He's a God of abundance. He doesn't want to give you the dregs and the crumbs. He wants to actually fully satisfy you. How dare we limit what God can do? Second reflection, that God, that God often uses people like you and me to provide for the needs of others. God often uses people to show his abundant provision. Now, don't mishear me. God can do that miraculously. Of course God can do that. If you read the Corrie Ten Boom biography, she recounts that time where she's in a concentration camp and she, she needs that medication. She's got enough medication for just one day. And so she takes the medication and she prays. The next day, miraculously, more medication is there. Just enough for the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day. And God miraculously provided for her needs. Of course God can do that. But the normal way, the, the most common way is through people. And that's the you of verse 16. You give them something to eat, says Jesus. You do it. Now let's think about this. Jesus could have fed all those people all on his own. But Jesus did not need that packed lunch. He, he didn't need... The disciples, he, he could have just prayed and caused bread to fall from heaven. He could have done that. Of course he could. But he chose to use ordinary people to demonstrate his power. He chose to place the bread in the hands of the disciples so the disciples could feed the crowd. And that's often the way that God works. He often asks us out of our plenty to give to those who are in need. And it's that mindset of having compassion for seeing the people in need. You've got eyes to see them. You think, there's a person I could help. I could provide a meal. I could provide a lift. I could offer some help. I could sit and talk to them. I could pray with them. Now, now please don't tell me, but Paul, I don't have much to offer. And I would say, well, loaves and fishes. Whatever little you've got, put it in the hands of Jesus and, and watch how he uses you to be providing abundance for other people. And then thirdly, only Jesus fully satisfies. That's that word in verse 20. They were satisfied. They were complete. They were content. They'd, they'd had enough because that's what Jesus does for you. Not just your physical needs, your material needs, but your spiritual needs. This reminds me of another time when Jesus also broke bread and lifted his hands to heaven and he said, this is my body. Remember that? He broke the bread. This is my body given for you. And then he went to the cross because he's meeting your spiritual needs. He's saying that when you come to Jesus, he fully satisfies you. He fully forgives you. He fully loves you. You're fully chosen and you're redeemed and restored and accepted by him. 
And whatever your physical needs are, to have that security that spiritually that you are loved and chosen and right with God, then you find true satisfaction. So God's abundant provision. Number two, God's assuring presence. God's assuring presence. That's a walking of water. And did you notice how the disciples were on this spiritual high? They'd just seen Jesus feed 20,000 people, but they go from a spiritual high, and the very next thing that happens is they're in a dangerous storm. And in my experience, life is often like that. You often go from a mountaintop experience of God to a valley of despair. You often go from a moment where you are delighting in God's treasures and the next moment you are despairing in a trial. Anyway, verse 22. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he dismissed the crowd, he went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. So there it is again. What Jesus longs for, what Jesus craves, is time alone with his God. Trust me, nothing can replace time alone with your God. Verse 23, later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. And so you've got these disciples in the middle of a storm, and the the winds are howling, the waves are pounding, and they're crashing over the boat. And please don't think cruise liner... Think tiny, tiny shipping boat, a, a, smish, a fishing boat. And remember, these are seasoned fishermen, so for them to be terrified, this storm must be crazy. Verse 25 is the most extraordinary verse. Please look at it. It's the most extraordinary verse. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. That's extraordinary. Now, the walking on the lake bit is not extraordinary. I'm not talking about that. Of course Jesus can walk on water. I mean, he's God. He could do anything. That's not extraordinary. The extraordinary bit is shortly before dawn. Because it seems like Jesus saw them in distress. And Jesus saw them in this storm, and he chose to wait He didn't go at midnight, he didn't go at 2 a.m., he didn't go at 4 a.m., he chose to wait till dawn. The disciples have been struggling in this storm for about eight hours by now. And I find that fascinating. Why Why didn't Jesus come sooner? Why didn't Jesus stop this storm sooner? He could have. You ever ask that about the storms in your life? Jesus, why are you why are you waiting? Why don't you do something now? Anyway, verse 26, when the disciples saw Jesus walking on the lake, they were terrified. Of course they're terrified because people don't walk on water. And then Jesus speaks in verse 25. He says, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. I wonder what tone of voice he used for that. Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Let's be honest, that sounds a bit patronizing, doesn't it? It's okay. Don't be scared. Someone said said to you, you just told your friend that you've got cancer or you're deeply depressed. They say, oh, will it be okay? Is that the tone of Jesus? It's not patronizing, it's powerful. 
Because in between those phrases, take courage and don't be afraid, are three important words. It is I. Or literally, I am. Or ego eimi is the Greek, that self-revelation of God. I am who I am. He's saying, the reason you can take courage and the reason that you're not afraid is because I am God. I am God and I am with you in this storm. So take courage and don't be afraid. Now, I love Peter. Peter often speaks first and then thinks later. Verse 28, he says, Lord, if it is you, tell me to come to you on the water. That's, that's a bold request, isn't it? Lord, I've seen you feed 20,000 people and I've seen you walk on water, so if, if it's really you, tell me to come out onto that water. And Jesus offers an invitation that he offers all of us. He just says one word, come. Come to me, says Jesus. Have you heard that before? Come to me. Let's stop there. What, what would you do? What would you do? The wind's howling, the waves are crashing against the boat, and, and Jesus says, come to me, step out of the boat. Let's be honest, I think I would just stay in the boat. I think I would choose the comfortable rational option and just stay in the boat. This is incredible faith from Peter, isn't it? To step out of the boat and for just a moment he is walking on water. When his eyes are fixed on Jesus, he is doing the impossible. And we'd love this to be the end of the story, but it's not. Because verse 30 tells us when, when, when Peter saw the wind, when Peter took his eyes off Jesus and looked at his circumstances, looked at the chaos around him, he was afraid. Jesus said, verse 27, don't be afraid. But when he took his eyes off Jesus, he is afraid. And he begins to sink. That's what happens when you look at your situation and stop looking at Jesus, you start to sink. And again, I think we're good at that. He cried out, Lord, save me. It's not a long prayer, is it? Help! Friends, I hope you know that you don't need long liturgical prayers when you're in a crisis. You just gasp. Help! A simple prayer of desperation and dependency is all Jesus needs to hear. And this time there's no waiting, is there? Verse 31, immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. Love that picture, the strong hand of Jesus eager to catch this man in, tr in trouble. But he asked a question, verse 31, you have little faith, not, not no faith, you have little faith, small faith. Why did you doubt, he says? Peter, why did you doubt? How would you answer that? Why did Peter doubt? Because he was looking at the storm and not at his saviour. He was looking at the chaos around him and the mess he was in and not at the one who could actually carry him and hold him in the mess. He doubted Jesus' power, his presence, his protection, his care. Verse 32, and when they climbed into the boat, when Jesus climbed into the boat with Peter, the wind died down because the presence of Jesus brings that calmness and that peace and the storm doesn't last forever. 
And then those who were in the boat worshipped Jesus, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. And that is the only right response, to say, Jesus, you are amazing. So a few reflections on this one. And a word of warning, it's not particularly pleasant. But it's true. Number one, Jesus often sends us into the storms. I say it again, Jesus often sends us into the storm. Did you see that? That Jesus made the disciples go on ahead of him. He made them get into that boat. He knew that storm was coming and he sends them into the storm. That was the will of God. It wasn't that the disciples disobeyed and so the storms came. No, Jesus sent them into the storm. And that's a truth that you've got to believe in. When the storms come, the heartache, the hurt, the brokenness, the diagnosis, the criticisms, the, the chaos, you might be surprised, but God is not surprised. And if you get that theology wrong, it's debilitating. Because if you start to think that the good things come from God and bad things come from the devil when you're in the middle of the storm, your faith will just shred. And don't mishear me. We don't like storms. We would never choose storms. But God is still over the storm and in the storm, and he knows that we've gone into them. Like Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Shall we accept good things from God and not bad, says Job? So God often sends us into storms. And God often waits. God often allows us to sit in that storm for way, way, way longer than we'd like or expect. And we'd love God to step in at midnight and calm the storm, but he often waits till dawn. Why? Because there's purpose in every storm. There's a purpose in every suffering. If there's a delay in healing, a delay in help, a delay in meeting, it is purposeful. There's a reason. God's doing something. He's teaching us something through that storm. And I hear it time and time and time again. It's when I was in the darkest of valleys that I encountered Jesus in a way I never would have. I would never have chosen to go to that, that depth of despair, but in that depth of despair, it was there that I met Jesus. As Spurgeon said, I've learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. I've learned to, to kiss the waves, to, to almost thank God for those storms that throw you onto Jesus. Because Jesus will not let you sink, but he might let you struggle. He won't let you sink, but he might let you struggle. Number three, Jesus never leaves you, even in the storms. His eyes were always on those disciples. He knew them. He saw them. He, he could have helped at any time, and he went to them, and he held them. And that is true of you and I. He may not immediately calm your storm, but he is with you. You may be battered and broken and bruised, terrified, lonely, perplexed, hurt, heartbroken, but Jesus is still with you. And when he's with you, when he's in the boat, you do experience peace. Not necessarily that your storm stops, but you experience this peace which is inexplicable. Someone said peace is not found in the absence of the storm, but in the presence of Jesus. And he is the one who still says, come, come to me, and you'll find rest for your soul. And then lastly tonight, and perhaps most challengingly, Faith 
Faith means stepping out of the boat and fixing your eyes on Jesus. We tend to criticize Peter, don't we? But did you notice that Peter is the only disciple who actually walked on water? He's the only one who actually had that joy of walking on water. Why? Because he was the only one who had the faith to actually get out of the boat. He had the courage in the middle of the storm to, to step out and trust Jesus. None of the other disciples did that. They all took the safe path, the comfortable path, the rational path. But God never intended us to have safe, comfortable faith, did he? But we stay in the boat. If you want to grow, step out of the boat. Take those risks. Trust Jesus. You step out in faith. And when you stumble, he will grab hold of you because he's right there. And then you fix your eyes on Jesus because when Peter fixed his eyes on Jesus and not on the situation around him, it's then he walked on water. Whatever you're facing, loneliness, leukemia, persecution, pain, hurt, cancer, heartache, critics, whatever you're facing, when you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, it doesn't diminish the pain, but his presence to hold you, to catch you, to carry you, that's your comfort. Friends, if Jesus could feed 20,000 people, he can, he can meet your needs. And if Jesus can walk on water, then he can, he can carry you whatever you're going through. Another song I'm loving is called Raise an Hallelujah, and I'll finish with this. It goes like this. I'm going to sing in the middle of the storm. Louder and louder, you're going to hear my praises roar. Up from the ashes, hope will arise because death is defeated and the king really is alive. And when you believe that the king is alive and he sees you, he knows your knees, he knows your pain, he feels your pain. And so in the middle of whatever storm you go through, you can still sing his praises because he's still God and he's still good. So let me pray. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that you are the all-powerful, the almighty one who can do more than we ask or imagine. Forgive us, Father, for times we overestimate the problem and underestimate you. Forgive us, Father, for times when we don't share what we have to meet the needs of others. Lord, show us your presence. And I do pray, Father, for people here tonight who are in the middle of, of storms, of chaos, of hurt or heartache. And I ask you, Lord Jesus, to draw near to them, to walk towards them on the water, and to invite them to come to you, to find a rest for their weary souls. And I ask that for Jesus' sake.